Well, uh, as was announced, well, welcome. My name is Patrick. I'm here, and uh, I, I just want to do something I don't normally do, and that is preach a topical sermon. Uh, normally, the, the practice here has been exposition. We go through a passage of text, a passage of scripture, and we, we go through it. But this morning, uh, I want to cover this subject of heaven, and it's a broad subject. So I think I will only get to the first part today and the next part next week. So... But before we begin, let, let's pray and ask, let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we need your help. What a topic that is before us. The place where we will one day be. And our imaginations can vary from person to person, from culture to culture, from upbringing to upbringing. So, God, I pray this morning, would you help us not just understand but look forward to that day when we will be with you in heaven. So help me now, I pray. Would you help me to gather my thoughts for they are running wild at this moment. So I pray, help me. Help me to be clear. Guard me from error and help your people be encouraged, I pray. And may Christ above all be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, imagine that uh, Elon Musk has selected you to be one of the few proud Americans to be part of a five-year mission to the planet Mars. And so you undergo extensive training about the effects of zero gravity. You understand and learn about rocket science trajectory coordinates, flight paths, emergency cabin, malfunction routines. You learn about sleep deprivation. You learn about a balanced and imbalanced diet and exercise. And then the day of the launch comes. And so you're getting strapped into your rocket ship. And one of your fellow astronauts whispers over to you and says, Hey, what do you think Mars will be like? And you turn to him and you say, I don't know. It wasn't in the training. I guess we'll find out. That would never fly in a SpaceX mission of any kind, NASA or whatever, private enterprise. And yet, in seminaries, in Bible schools, in churches, so little is taught on heaven. There's little teaching about our ultimate destination. And so I have been convicted that I have not spent the time that I need to in and on this topic of heaven, where I am going. And when people ask me about heaven, I give them very short, brief answers that are not thorough at all. To my shame, I have done that. And so for the past several weeks and months, as I've been thinking about death and about heaven, I've been convinced that I need to teach on this in some capacity. And so here it is. We're going to try to help you with heaven. And so I propose this morning that being prepared for heaven makes us more useful Christians on earth. The more prepared we are for heaven, the more useful we will be as Christians on this earth. And so I have three points, and as I mentioned, I can only get to a few of them this morning. We'll only cover two. But the three points are, one, entertaining heaven. 
Secondly, entering heaven. And thirdly, enjoying heaven. And really the first point about entertaining heaven is, why is it that we're so lost in our thinking about heaven? Why is it that we're so unprepared for heaven? And so let's begin of why it is that we continually entertain thoughts about heaven. My introduction to heaven as a Christian was shaped by my youth pastor. That's the first time I heard about a Christian heaven. I was 16, the tender age of 16, and he, this youth pastor, appealed to my base desires about heaven. He said, this is what heaven will be like. He said, quote, from my memory, this is what I remember my youth pastor saying. He said, imagine being in heaven when you die. So far, so good. I said, yes, I want that. And then he said, heaven will be a place where you will have bodies, but in the clouds. I said, okay. And then he said this, imagine playing volleyball in heaven where you can spike the sun. And at that moment, I said, I want that. I want that because you have to remember, this is in the 90s. And in the 90s, the one commercial that dominated every teenager's mind was the Gatorade commercials of I want to be like Mike. And when I thought, funny thing about that commercial, no one wanted Gatorade, everyone wanted to be like Mike. But in that commercial, and in that moment when he said that you could spike the sun, two of my base desires were fulfilled. One, I could jump really high. So high that I would be up in the clouds. And the second base desire was something I've always wanted to be. I've always wanted to be tall. I'm 5'8 on a good day. And so here he's saying that I can spike the sun. So in my mind, I will be a giant in heaven. Where I will not be able to not only be jump high, able to jump high, but I will be able to spike the sun. I will grow so that the ball of gas is now within the size of my palm. Now, as silly as that is, I believed all of that at 16. And I continued to believe that through my college years. And then, in the 2000s, those base desires were fulfilled again. From high school through college years, that theology of volleyball heaven remained, but it wasn't until 2004 when a series of books started coming out on this subject of heaven. In 2004, Baker Publishing released Don Piper's book, not John Piper, do not confuse, Don Piper's book. His book was titled 90 Minutes in Heaven. And in this book, Mr. Piper would tell a story of his death in a car accident where he would then enter into heaven for 90 minutes and then come back to earth to tell people about it. His book would sell one million copies in the span of two years. By 2007, it was awarded the ECPA Medallion Award. Overall, that book sold six million copies and was ranked a New York Times bestseller. Well, after the book of 90 Minutes in Heaven, Bill Weiss published a book entitled 23 Minutes in Hell, one man's story about what he saw, heard, and felt in that place of torment. It wasn't nearly as popular as 90 Minutes in Heaven, but it was on the bestseller list for just a few weeks. But it wasn't until Halloween Day, October 31st, 2010, that Thomas Nelson Publishers released a book entitled 
Heaven is for Real, written by Todd Burpo. And the book is about Todd's four-year-old son named Alex Burpo, who allegedly died from a burst appendix and then went to heaven and came back to tell the world that he- what heaven was like. That book became an instant bestseller, ranked number one in the New York Times bestseller. By 2011, in just seven months, it sold four million copies. That book would eventually sell a total number of 11 million copies and would then be turned into a movie in 2014. The budget for the movie was $12 million. After all was said and done, that movie amassed a total of $101 million. You see, dear friends, heaven is a lucrative business. In the past two decades, we have seen books that discuss the afterlife. People who have died and come back from heaven. And I would categorize all those movies and all those books in this genre of afterlife tourism, where there are people so compelled to tell us about the afterlife and guide us through and tell us what it's like to be in heaven, where the authors portray themselves as tour guides. Now, I want to tell you right now, I want to speak to you on heaven, but I've never been there. I've never been there. I have not received a vision about heaven. I have not had any kind of dream or been taken up to heaven. I've never been there, but I want to tell you about it because God's word tells us about heaven. Why is it that so many people are so fascinated by the afterlife? I think it's because our human nature understands that we all long for this basic desire. Both children and adults have these base desires that shape how we can sometimes envision heaven. For me, it was jumping high. For uh, the young man, uh, Burpo, Alex Burpo, it was being able to sit on the lap of Jesus where he quotes, was able to have the angels sing to him. And, uh, and according to his words, Jesus did not let him carry a sword in heaven like everyone else because he was too small and, quote, he would be too dangerous, according to Jesus, in his one account. So we all have these imaginations, dreams about what heaven might be like. Spurgeon warned of such imaginations about heaven when he said, quote, It's a little heaven below to imagine sweet things. But never, but never think that imagination can picture heaven. When it is most sublime, when it is freest from the dust of earth, when it is carried up by the greatest knowledge and kept steady by the most extreme caution, imagination cannot picture heaven. If had not entered the heart of man, the things which God had prepared for them that love him, imagination is good, but not to picture us, to, but not to picture to us heaven. Your imaginary heaven you will find by and by to be all a mistake. Though you may have piled up fine castles, you will find them to be castles in the air, and they will vanish like thin clouds before the gale. For imagination cannot make a heaven. End quote. Dear friends, heaven and eternity are real. Everybody believes in heaven. Everybody believes in heaven. Everybody believes in an afterlife. Even the, the most hardened atheist, which there is no such thing as, they believe in some form of continuation of life. And I can prove this to all of you. 
funerals. Why is it that when someone dies, we all weep? We all prepare for death. We all anticipate death. We all know it is coming for each one of us. The greatest statistics ever shared that is a fact is that 10 out of 10 people die. All of us know death is coming, and yet when it comes, we weep. It's a disruption to what we know should not be. It's as if God created us to live forever. And that's exactly what God's Word tells us. Ecclesiastes 3.11 affirms this. He has set eternity in their heart. We know that there is a disruption to what we know to be true, that death is coming, but even when it comes, we are never prepared for it. Because at some way or another, we believe we need to keep living. There is something that awaits us, an eternity. Jesus affirms this. He says in the end, in Matthew 25, humanity will fall into one of two groups. He says these, those who do not place their faith in Christ, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Eternity will be eternal damnation and torment in hell or eternal joy and life for those who have placed their faith in Jesus. So believers who have placed their faith in Christ, instead of entertaining heaven, we should conform our thinking to a biblical heaven. Why would we do this? Well, because Scripture tells us to. Turn in your Bibles. We're going to be turning a lot because this is a topical sermon. Go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I want to read to you a passage that clearly tells us why it is that we need to be thinking constantly, more regularly than we ought to, regarding heaven. Colossians chapter 3 says this, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. That's a present That's a present verb that says continue to keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Continually do this. Set your minds. Go to Philippians. One book over. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20. He says this, For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. After addressing the Christians who have died because of their faith, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 16 says this, But as it is, they, that is those who have uh, lived for Christ, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. So our goal this morning is not to entertain heaven, whether it's through the Burpos, or another book by the Malarkeys, or another book by Piper, by Don Piper, or any of these other movies that continually entertain us, we shouldn't entertain them. Instead, we should instead trust what God's Word has said. Because when we entertain thoughts about heaven in all these different ways, what it does is it it undermines what God says clearly in His Word about heaven. What God has revealed is enough. And when we do this, we violate sola scriptura, where God's word alone is sufficient and the authority. What happens when someone comes to you and says, you know, I've been to heaven and I want to tell you about it? That means they become the authority of heaven. That means you need to listen to people that have gone and had these 
kinds of visions. And as Christians, we don't exercise discernment. We said, oh, okay, I want to listen to him. He's seen a vision. But that undermines what God has clearly said. And let me explain to you why that we must be careful because we could train ourselves to look for the spectacular, train ourselves to look for visionaries, mystical myths and things like these. Because we do not want experience to become our authority. Go to Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. Here is something that we need to understand before we begin this subject of heaven as we are trying to fight against entertaining heaven. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 says this. This is Peter speaking to the dispersed Christians in Asia Minor. He says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Peter is saying that there's been reports about this Lord. There's been many tales about Him. But I want you to know that we apostles, we are direct eyewitnesses. We saw Him. We heard Him. And look what he says in verse 17. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory. Where we heard these words, He says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so he says in verse 18, And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on that holy mountain. What Peter is talking about was when Jesus took three of his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, they went up to the mountain, and Jesus showed them his true self. He transfigured where his face shone like white. and There was as if a glow about him. And so he explains that I was an eyewitness visually and audibly. I heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my son. And notice what he says, despite being direct eyewitnesses to all of these things. Look at what he says in verse 19. 19. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to you which do well which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts what he is saying very simply is this the most powerful eyewitness testimony according to Deuteronomical law was the witness of two or three witnesses they fulfilled that if you were to bring a charge against anyone whether it's a crime an accusation of any kind the strongest most powerful witness in the court of law was an eyewitness. And now he's saying something radical. He's saying, but there's something even more reliable than an eyewitness. There's something even more reliable than personal testimony. That is the more sure word. Something more reliable is this prophetic word. This word of God is what we must trust, not human experiences. And then he makes this comparison of the word by calling it like a lamp shining in a dark place because our experiences can be darkened Even our own experiences are not perfect. And so we need something that is. And this is where the Word of God comes in. It's like a light. It's like a light in a dark place. Echoing, I think, Psalm 119, verse 105, where the psalmist says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 
So dear friends, there have been too much entertaining of heaven. And so I plead with you for these next few moments that whatever misconception you may have had of heaven from maybe one of these books that you may have read or one of these movies that you may have read of children going to heaven and coming back or movies that people have told you, you must see this movie. I get that all the time. I must see this movie. My default answer is I'm not going to see that movie. I don't care how exciting it is because I have the Word of God. I don't need my imagination with artistic license to, to change what God has revealed. Instead, I want to trust what God's Word says because it is more reliable in experience, in dreams, than visions. So let's spend some time not entertaining heaven Let's now spend some time entering heaven. Let's, let's walk into heaven. Let's see what it's like. Let's correct our thinking from entertaining to now entering in. The question we need to be asking, what is heaven like? And why should we be thinking about heaven? Well, as I mentioned, there's because there's clear texts. We need to be thinking about it. He says, keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is, that's, we're commanded to do this. But are we doing it? We have books that we read. You're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Our world tells us, stop thinking and put, keeping your head in the clouds. Be down here on the earth. And the Bible actually says, no, think about heaven. Occupy thoughts about heaven. Richard Baxter said, a heavenly mind is a joyful mind. That is the nearest and truest way to live a life of comfort. Can a man be at fire? Can a man be at a fire and not be warm? Or in the sunshine and not have light? Can your heart be in heaven and not have comfort? On the other hand, what could make such frozen, uncomfortable Christians but living so far as they do from heaven? Oh, Christian, go above. Believe it. That region is warmer than this below. So our minds need to be occupied with the things above because too many Christians are contemplating the things of the earth in our hearts aren't warm. We grow cold to this world. And it happens every cycle. This is going to be another election year. What will dominate and preoccupy our thinking? It will be the things of the earth. A new ruler, a new king, a new president. C.S. Lewis said, he actually warned, he said this, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. And he's right. We can sometimes be so lost and so consumed in heaven, uh, on the earth that we lose sight of heaven. And so this is convicting for me. This is convicting because I have thought much about the earth, the things of the earth, the politics of the earth, the news of the earth, the conflicts of the earth, the drama unfolding on the earth. But I want to be thinking above. I want to go upward. 
And this has been a topic that has been consuming my thoughts and I hope to help you now as we look at what is heaven like. Well, first of all, heaven, heaven is a kind of place. Heaven is a kind of place. When we think of heaven, we often think of location. We ask ourselves, where is it? Heaven is up in the clouds, some would say. Or some would say it's out in outer space. We as human beings function spatially. We all operate within space. Our grammar, how we speak, is full of words that tell us spatial things. Our grammar tells us, and we are always concerned about location, we have relative pronouns. Here or there. Or if you're Spanish, aquí or allá. Did I get that right to my Spanish friends? Or for the Filipinos, dito or duon. There's always all sorts of pronouns that tell us over here or over there. Where are you? I'm going there, but I'm not over here. Our language is full of it. We have prepositions. Above, below, behind, in front. Everything we do is always concerned about where. And so when we ask the question about heaven, there's debates, debates, debates. Oh, I believe it's over here. I believe it's down there. I believe it's here. I believe it's over there. So rather than say we heaven is a place with a location, heaven is a kind of place. It's a unique kind of place. Isaiah 66 verse 1 says, it's the dwelling place of God. He says, heaven is my throne. When Jesus taught the disciples to pray, he said in Matthew chapter 6 verse 9, our Father who art in heaven, the abode of God the Father is in heaven. In 1 Peter 3.22, notice I was pointing up to heaven. I just assume heaven is up there without even thinking about it. I'm not sure if it's up there. Maybe it is. 1 Peter 3.22 says that Jesus is now at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven. And then Jesus would say to his disciples as he was preparing a place, he said to them, I go to, pre- uh, I go to prepare a place for you in John 14. Verse 2, why don't you turn there? John chapter 14. This is amazing what Jesus is doing in John chapter 14. This is the upper room discourse where Jesus is telling the disciples he is going to leave them. These men whom he has spent nearly three years being with, discipling. And he is now telling them after in chapter 13... He tells them that he's going away. He's washed their feet. He's fed them. He has now been betrayed by Judas, who is now going away to betray him by calling the Sadducees and Pharisees to to arrest him. And he's telling these men, these disciples, who will now be hated by the world, these men who will be persecuted, these men who will plant churches and they will be rejected, these men who will be killed for their faith, who will suffer and undergo great trials, they will be hated by their own families. What's the big speech that Jesus is now going to give them? What's he going to do to motivate them about this great uncertainty and trial that is before them? What will he tell them? This is what he tells them. He says in chapter 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus is telling them, after your life and battle with sin against the devil and against the flesh and against this world, you're going home. You're going to the place where my Father is preparing a place. In my Father's house, there's many dwelling places. Some translation says, in many rooms. And I will go and prepare it ahead of you. I'm going ahead of you. In this place is where you will one day be. Heaven is a place where at times, is the place where we will one day be welcomed by the Father and by the Son. And because of that idea that this world is not our home, that I will belong to another world, the disciples changed the world. They changed the Roman Empire. They transformed everything with that mindset that I am no longer here, but I will one day go there in heaven, in that place where God the Father dwells. Heaven is a place where at times we're able to see what is there, wherever heaven is. There are times when we're able to see an event that's taking place in heaven. Go to the book of Acts. Turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7. This is the account of Stephen, the first martyr. In Acts chapter 7, after he preaches Christ, he's being persecuted. And then Acts chapter 7, verse 54, let's pick it up there. Here's what happens. Now when they heard this, these are the hearers of the preaching of Stephen, they were cut to the quick. They were gnashing their teeth. It's a sign of utter rebellion when someone gnashes their teeth. It's a picture of what people in hell are doing right now when they gnash their teeth. It's a a sign of I am against what you have said and they're gnashing their teeth at him. But notice what Stephen does. But... Contrast to them. Here's what happens to to Stephen. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Heaven is a kind of place where God dwells. It's a kind of place where at times... At times, God allows us to see what is taking place there. We can't see it. But there's times He peels the, the layers and allows unique persons to be able to see what takes place there. And what He sees is a space where there is the resurrected Christ with a body because He's standing. He's standing and He's next to the Father on a throne So here, heaven is a kind of place where God dwells. It's a kind of place where we don't know the location, but it's a kind of place that welcomes us. It's a place that is called home because it's a house where God welcomes us to. It's a kind of place that is imperceptible to our natural senses until God, at times, may allow us to see it. And this is important to understand because some Christians don't know that heaven is an actual place. There are religions. There are even Christians who believe that heaven is not a place, but it's a state of mind. It's a state of thinking. It's kind of like Buddhism, where you have a state of nirvana, a state of peace. You can't 
attain that. It just happens to you. It's very new age where Christians can sometimes think that heaven is really a state of mind. It's a new age idea where you reach the state of enlightenment and perfect peace. That's not heaven. That's false gospel. That's false religion is what that is. Instead, heaven, biblically speaking, is an actual kind of place where those who are in Christ will go. That's number one. Heaven is a kind of place. Secondly, heaven is an immediate place. It's an immediate place. That means that when a Christian dies, a Christian, when a Christian dies, they immediately enter heaven. There is no in-between state. There is no soul sleep or trial place or detention center before the Christian enters heaven. Heaven. It's immediate. The moment a Christian dies, instantly they are taken to the Lord. It's it's fast. There is no period of time. In Luke chapter 23, why don't you turn there? You see the the immediacy of when we get to heaven. This famous passage in Luke chapter 23, verse 42, where you have the the scene of the crucifixion of our Lord and to his right and to his left are two thieves and one of them speaks and has a conversation. The repentant thief speaks in verse 42 and he, and he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's, this, this thief has come to saving faith while hanging on the cross somehow and placed his faith on Christ. And now he speaks and says, remember me. And notice what Jesus says to him. Truly, truly, I say to you that today you will be in a holding place. You will be in a state of soul sleep. That's not what he says. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, the immediacy of it. The moment you die, you will be with me in paradise. It's immediate. Go to 2 Corinthians Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's pick it up in verse 6. This is the chapter where Paul is really in the middle of a long conversation that begins in chapter 4 verse 1 where he repeats this phrase, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. He's talking about what ministry with people is really like. There's hardships when it comes to ministry. There's joys, but there's also difficulties when it comes to ministry. And he talks about how his life is going to be spent pursuing Christ, and that life entails persecutions, abandonments, trials, and even death itself. And so he says, we do not lose heart. Why? Because he says that, he's saying this not because he's a super Christian, not because he's been gifted more or been given more grace than the average Christian. He doesn't lose heart because he believes that when he dies... He will immediately be with the Lord. Look in chapter 5, verse 6. He says this, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Notice he says, he has a wordplay because right now we are at home in the body. Right now, all of us are at home in the body. This is our dwelling place at home. But we are absent from the Lord, meaning we are separated 
we are separated physically from the Lord. But the moment we die, notice what happens. We become absent from the body and we become at home with the Lord immediately. There is no staged holding place. There is no trial waiting period. It's immediate. It's immediate. There's no holding cell. There is no limbo. There is no limbo. And if you've heard of that term limbo, it's a Latin phrase that means border. And it really became popular in Roman Catholic theology. It means border, showing that there's a border between heaven and hell. There's this border that you're neither you're not in heaven <clears throat> and you're not in hell, but you're in this in-between state called limbo. <clears throat> you're in this border place. And so why would this place called limbo even exist? In the 4th and 5th centuries, there was a doctrine that was developed under Gregory of Nazianzus and with Augustine. And the doctrine of limbo was created or developed because infant mortality was so high. Babies were dying. Babies were dying. And so what the church did at that time, the Roman Catholic Church at that time, what they did was to comfort grieving parents was they baptized infants. They baptized infants because they started teaching that in order to get to heaven, you need to baptize infants. They need to be baptized so that they would be in the kingdom. And so the question then becomes, what happens to infants who aren't baptized? Where are they? What happens to those babies who aren't baptized in this Roman Catholic system? They couldn't have an answer. And so what they said, well, they are in a place called limbo, an in-between state where they're not in heaven and they're not in hell because they have not done any wrong or right. They are neutral. They are in the state of limbo. And just as an observation, you see how one false doctrine leads to another false doctrine. And it just piles on and on. Because our desires, as good as they are, can sometimes warp and shape our thinking about what happens next or where heaven is. And so, out of great desperation, medieval Christians, ancient Christians, believed that in order for my baby to go to heaven, they need to be baptized. They need to be baptized because if they don't, they are stuck in this place called limbo. You can't find that anywhere in the Bible. This whole notion of limbo and in-between state, you will not find that in the Bible. It's an appeal to a base desire of human, of parents who have lost their children. Now, I do believe that infants do go to heaven. The babies who die will immediately go to heaven. And it has nothing to do with their baptism. It has nothing to do with their baptism. And two passages helped me sort this out in my mind as I was thinking about what happens to babies. John chapter 9, verse 39 to 41, where Jesus is talking to the the blind man and he addresses the Pharisees. And he tells to the Pharisees and he says to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Jesus is showing that Because they are not blind, they are not ignorant to sin. They are able to sin. And because they're sinning, they are guilt. They have guilt in them. But for the 
blind man or for the one who's unable to see what it is that they're doing, what it is that they're rejecting, who it is that they're rejecting, who it is that they are against, like an infant, like a child, like a baby in the womb who's unable, incapable of directly disobeying, rejecting God, it says they would have no guilt. That's one text. Another text that helps me think about what happens to babies is 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23. And this is the passage where King David, after he commits adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, she's pregnant and she's with child, and yet that child dies. And so remember, David goes into great mourning. He's weeping and he's fasting. But when the child dies, first, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, King David testifies after his, his child dies and he says, I will go to him. Somehow, in some way that that child, that infant, who was not yet born in the womb, born outside of the womb, a child, a young baby, will be in heaven because of the mercy of God, because that child could not high hand rebel against God, unlike us humans who reject and who rebel and reject God. And I'm not dogmatic about these verses because I know there is difficulty in these texts, but I just want you to know that you don't need to be baptized for babies to enter into heaven. Salvation is by faith. And yet God provides a, a kindness to innocent ones. Because heaven is a place where babies, adults, when they die, if you are in Christ, immediately you go there. Immediately. Immediately. Third, heaven is an irrevocable place. It's irrevocable. Because heaven is an immediate place, it also means it's an irrevocable place. It means that if you die in Christ, you will be in heaven. There's a guarantee to that. If you die without Christ, you will be in hell. If it's true that the moment you die, you will be in heaven, it's also true that the moment you die outside of Christ, you will be in the place outside of heaven, in the place where you will be judged. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says that it has been appointed for man to die once. And after this comes the judgment. And I say this because there are those who believe that when someone is not sure about someone's salvation, they place a period of intermediate, a place of a holding. It's not limbo, but there's a place where they can be purged of their sins. A place where they can be somehow given a second chance opportunity that if they die, they will be in this waiting period where they can gather more credit or more merit for themselves. In Roman Catholic theology, this has been called purgatory. That place in between death on earth and eternal life in heaven with Jesus. It's, it's called purgatory because that's the place where sins could be purged. How long will it take for those sins to be purged? We don't know how long. It's a place where the souls of the dead go to be further purified from sin until they are ready to be admitted into heaven. According to Roman Catholic theology, the sufferings experienced in purgatory are offered to God as a substitute for the punishment of sins that they should have received. And so what happens to those in purgatory? According to Roman Catholic theology, well, that means that there are people on this earth that can pray and ask God to shorten the time of those that are in 
purgatory to be removed so that they can immediately go to heaven. Or back in the medieval era, if prayers to the dead weren't accepted, you could always buy what was called an indulgence. A piece of paper that says the life of your loved one who is in purgatory could be shortened from 10,000 years to now 5,000. It's cut in half, but it will only cost you this amount of money. So that whole system was developed, again, out of a base desire to cause people to escape this irrevocable judgment that happens the moment a person dies, where they will either be in heaven or they will be in hell. Again, this doctrine of purgatory is not found in any verse in the Bible. It's found, however, in non-canonical, non-canonical books. It's found in the book of Maccabees. But it violates everything that Scripture says. It violates Hebrews 9.27 that the moment a person dies, judgment comes. It violates the way judgment is meted out by God. Notice how it fails to, up, to be uphold according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Go turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Notice how judgment is meted out by God. This chapter, as we looked at, is speaking about being in the body, outside the body, what it means when we die, when we are given a new body, when we're raised to new life with God in heaven. And so he says this phrase of what happens to us when we die in verse 10. He says in verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You see, when you're judged, you're judged not because of your spirit. You're not judged because of, a, of what you're doing in this purgatory place, because that's where your spirit is. You're judged because of what your body has done. Because God looks at you and judges you for your whole person. Not because of your spirit, and not because of your body, but together, what all of you has done. That's how God meets out, executes judgment. And so for purgatory to exist, where God is going to somehow judge and meet out punishment in purgatory, where the spirit is, but the body is in the ground, that violates how judgment is meted out. Because when God judges, He judges based on deeds. Not the things that you think about, but the deeds that you do. That you actually do with your body. The people that you hurt with your tongue. The people that you hurt with your hands. The, 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 the sins that you commit. All those things. God says He will judge. We will appear before the judgment seat. And He will judge us according to what we have done. Lastly, not only does it fail the biblical test because it's not in the Bible and the Bible goes against it, but if purgatory does exist or any other temporary holding place, whatever doctrine else is out there that says there's this holding place where you can somehow make up for what you've done, if there's a limbo of some kind that you can somehow make up for the sins you've committed, the most devastating thing that it does is it diminishes what Christ has done. It diminishes what Christ has done. The finished work of Christ, where Jesus said when He died on the cross, He said, it is finished. Nothing else needs to be done. The work of atonement for the sacrifice of sins is complete. Nothing more needs to be added. That's why what Jesus has done, He has not just forgiven some of your sins, He's forgiven all your sins. As far as the East is from the West, Christ can forgive you of all your sins. It's complete. 
And it's irrevocable. And even though you feel guilty, even though deep down inside you say to yourself, I'm not sure if he really has, I still need to, I feel like I need to go to church. I still feel like I need to do something. I need to do more and more and more in trying to appease this guilty conscience that I need to do more. And you know you're not alone when you, when you think that way. Jesus faced the Pharisees this way. They were trying to do more and more and more and more. They kept going to temple again and again. They kept sacrificing again and again and again. And they were weary from all their futile attempts to try to please God. And so what does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28? He says, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's saying these people are weary not because they're tired from the job. They're weary because they're trying to please God with their own works and with their own doing. And God says, don't do that. You can't do that. Come to me. Come to me. And I will give you rest because what I have accomplished on the cross is complete. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can't be condemned again if, you're, if you place your faith in Christ. That means that even if your thoughts of condemnation come, even if your feelings of guilt come, even if people around you say you are guilty, if you are truly in Christ, you cannot be condemned. Because it's secure, it's final. Now, if your lifestyle, however, contradicts this profession that you have made, if this lifestyle that you live contradicts everything that Christ says a new creature is, then you have very good reason to maybe question your salvation. Maybe you are not in Christ. Maybe you've come to Christian things. You've come to Love, Inc. You've come to UGM. You've come to serve. You've come to Bible study. You've come to church. You're surrounded by people who know Christ. But maybe you don't know Christ. And if you don't know Christ, that means your destiny is also final. That if you were to die, you enter into a place of torment, conscious torment. But if you're in Christ and you die, immediately you're in eternal joy with Christ. It's final and it's irrevocable. It can't be changed. You can't be prayed out of heaven. You can't be prayed out of hell. The destiny, by, according to God's judgment, is irrevocable. God will not change His mind because God will not change His judgments. Heaven is a kind of place. It's an immediate place, but also it's an irrevocable place. Lastly, heaven is also a better place. It's a better place. When Paul was in prison in Rome and was writing to the Philippians, he contemplated his own death. And he was faced with two realities. Go to Philippians chapter 1. When Paul was wondering, what is the outcome of this life? He says, I am hard-pressed. Chapter 1, verse 23. I don't know what to do. My fate is in the hands of my executioners. If Roman soldiers decide to kill me, I have no choice. But I am hard-pressed. What do I want? What is my desire? I am hard-pressed from both directions, having one, the desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. He says, I'm torn. I'm torn. But he says, but if I were to be with Christ, that's better. He's be- it's, it's better than to being, being here. Now, what does he mean that it's better? 
Paul is not suicidal where he's thinking, I want to die, I just want to be ushered into heaven. He's not maniacal. But he was contemplating what it means for him to die in the hands of his Roman captors. Because a few verses earlier, this is what he says in verse 21. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's a a puzzling verse for Paul to say. But in the context, he's considering two options of living or dying. Some have said that to live is Christ. Some believe that that means that he's thinking about his union, his spiritual union with Christ. To live is Christ is my theological union with Christ. Well, some have also said that to live is Christ means my service to Christ. All that I have done with my body for Christ. That's what it means to live for Christ. But I agree with Godspeed, Knox and Phillips. And what they hold is what I hold that when what it means to live as Christ is both the physical and spiritual all summed up in Christ. Everything that Paul did, his trust, his love, his hope, his preaching, his serving, his suffering, his joys, his sorrows, his trials, his affections, all those things are in our Christ. In other words, that's the Christian life. The Christian life is not roses, it's not all joy, and it's not all suffering. It's a mixture of both. That's the Christian life. And he says, for to me to live is Christ. That is Christ. All of those things is good and it's Christ. But to die. But if I were to fall into the hands of my Roman executioners, that would be gain. Why? Because I would be with Christ immediately in His presence. And as torn and as hard-pressed as I am, he knew it would be better to be with Christ. Oh, dear friends, do you think of heaven as that place where Christ is? You know, this is what makes heaven heaven. This is what makes heaven heaven. John Piper uh, asked a very provocative question in his book, one of my favorite books called God is the Gospel, where he asked this question, and I've said it before, it's worth pondering again, he asked this question. The critical question for our generation is this, and for every generation. If you could have heaven with no sickness, and with all your friends that you've had on earth, and with all the food that you could ever enjoy, and all the natural beauty that you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures that you could ever taste, and there would be no human conflict of any kind, or there would be no natural disasters, would you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? Well, may the answer to that question be a resounding no. Because what we have done is we have erected in our minds a Christless heaven. And that is not a heaven. That is, in fact, the very opposite. That is the absence of Christ. That would be a hell to be in. What makes heaven, heaven is Christ. Oh, would we gain when we die, like Paul says. Would we be able to say, it is gain to die. And that doesn't mean we're not afraid of dying. It just means that when we cross that threshold, in the next moment, we die. We will be in that place, in the centerpiece of that place, will be this one who is called Jesus. Now let me end here. Let me ask you. If I'm to prepare you for heaven, I need to ask you this question. Do you want Jesus in this place now? Do you want Jesus in this place now? In this place, do you want Jesus? 
Because if you don't want Jesus in this place now, why would you want Jesus in the next place there? There's so many people that want heaven. What surprises me is they don't want Jesus. They want heaven, but they don't want Jesus. Why would anyone want Jesus? Why would anyone want Jesus? Because this is what Jesus has done. Jesus is the one who came and left heaven. He left heaven to come down to us and be with us, to offer himself, to live a life with purpose. And the purpose that he lived was one of obedience. He lived a life of perfect obedience to show that you and I could not obey. We could not obey. And so he lived this obedient life for you and I. And he lived this life for us. And he died a death that he did not deserve. He died our death for our behalf. And he was raised to new life on the third day so that if we place our faith in this one who left heaven to be in our world, we would be joined to him and leave this world and be joined to him in heaven. That's what it means for Jesus. That's what it means for Jesus to come out of heaven and be with us. He is the Son of Man. I write these things so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of why he came. And if there's any preparation for heaven, it's not knowing where it is, it's not about knowing what kind of place it is. It's all those things, but the one thing that you must know is you must know Jesus. Because if you don't know Jesus, why would you want to be where Jesus is? That's part one. Next week, we'll look at part two. But what happens to us while we're in heaven for eternity? What will we be doing? Let's pray. Father, I'll help us to long for heaven because Christ is there. Help us to be so heavenly minded that we would be of great earthly good as we tell others of this place that awaits us this place that is final it's irrevocable this place that is certain this place where you are this place that would welcome us oh God I pray help us to protect our thoughts about heaven that is not according to your word but instead help us to be shaped as we think about the things above that we would long to be where you are, that we would be with you according to what your word has said. So I pray, would you save sinners this morning, that they would be with you in heaven. Do this, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.